Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 51. This is Part 2, um, continuing on here, Historic Preservation Architectural Series of Wood Carving and Millwork. We're going to finish this one up in Part 2, okay? So we're going to tee off here talking about some terminology in the wood carving and millwork industry, okay? Um, so joinery is the craft of joining pieces of wood together. It's joinery, not jointery. So a joinery is putting pieces together. Uh, jointing something is uh, uh, using the jointer. So to accomplish this, several standard joints came into common use, and they included. So let's talk about the joints. The butt joint. This joint was formed when two flat edges were placed next to one another, either in parallel or at a 90-degree angle to one another. This joint was used in early casework, flooring, and some vertical paneling, but had the tendency to reveal gaps as wood shrinks in response to temperature and humidity changes. Dados and grooves. These slots were respectively cut across and along the grain of a board to receive a shelf or a panel. Dovetail. The joint featured interlocking triangular flared grooves cut along the ends of two pieces of wood commonly used to secure cabinet carcasses or drawers together. The half lap. This joint, commonly used in window buttons and cabinet carcasses, was formed when complementary corresponding portions of the framing were removed, so that when the framing was secured together, the material formed a full thickness of, a, of the joint itself. Miter. This joint was formed by cutting a 45-degree angle along the length or ends of the wood to form a corner that was commonly used in paneling and muttons. Mortise and tenon. This joint was commonly used in making doors, windows, and paneling. A protruding tenon was shaped on the rail, the horizontal piece, and the corresponding mortise was cut into the style, the vertical receiving piece. A stopped or blind tenon was one that was concealed completely within the mortise. When the mortise extended completely through the style, it was called a through tenon. A shiplap. This joint was formed when alternating rabbited edges were placed next to one another to form a continuous plane. It was commonly used in flooring and in horizontal and vertical paneling to accommodate shrinkage without allowing a gap to show. A spline. This joint was formed when two grooved edges were connected by filling the gap with a continuous thin strip of wood. A variant of this was a biscuit joint, where thin, discrete pieces of wood, which are called biscuits, this is contemporary, were fit into two adjoining slots. These were used in flooring and to build up smaller widths of wood into a panel. Tongue and groove. This joint was formed by cutting a continuous protruding tongue along the edge of one piece of wood that made it into a matching groove cut along the edge of the adjoining or receiving piece of wood. 
early mechanical fasting systems including included animal high glue and nails, the increasing mass production of screws, hinges, and other fastening mechanisms enabled their widespread use for many millwork assemblies in the late 19th century. In its earliest form, decorative trim was an embellishment of material used for commonly constructed objects, such as doors, windows, trim, paneling, and other ornamental objects. Cutting and shaping with hand tools was a slow, laborious process. In some instances, this process could be speeded up using a reciprocating treadle that provided the motive force to turn a lathe or other shaping device. The introduction of wood-powered sawmills began the process of introducing cutting and shaping methods that fostered the use of millwork to create this <clears throat> and sell decorative enhancements in wood on a broader scale. Trees could be cut more readily into timbers, planks, and most importantly, the boards and stick work that could be used to create the subcomponents used to assemble doors, window sashes, paneling, and decorative assemblies. The subsequent in introduction of steam power and eventually electric power increased production capability. By the late 19th century, the vast majority of decorative woodwork was being mass-produced in mills and factories around the country. This woodwork became increasingly evident in the carpenter Gothic style and culminated in the Queen Anne style at the end of the 19th century. The complete abandonment of manual production was stalled by the arts and crafts movement that emerged at the turn of the 20th century. Early 20th century revival styles revived the use of various ornamental elements, originally done manually, updated by the use of mass production. Today, computer-controlled milling machines can be combined with digital scanning technology to create identical reproductions of historic ornamentation. The 20th century also introduced plastics, laminates, and other substitute materials that can provide ornamental detail for a fraction of the cost of a manually produced decorative element. Many decorative elements consisted of smaller components crafted and assembled in the mill and made in specific widths and lengths with a uniform profile or integrated details that were formed using a router or drill. These details were promoted in a variety of trade catalogs and were shipped nationwide to promote job sites. This process <clears throat> promoted the na nationalization of decorative taste and further moved millwork into the public eye as it became more readily and economically available. Throughout the historic period in this episode, numerous forms of exterior wood ornaments were used. In some instances, the ornament was an embellishment on a structural member. In others, it was simply a non-structural aspect of the exterior cladding or porch. Assorted shutters, trim moldings, brackets, verge boards, which are also, don't forget, known as barge boards, pendants, cutwork, fretwork, spindles, railings, steps, and other elements were used when a particular architectural style called for it. Interior trim included baseboards, chair rails, picture rails, and window and door casework.
Typically, humbler buildings had less elaborate examples of these pieces, if any at all. As trim work became more available and as building owners prospered, trim became more (coughs) extensively used and elaborately detailed. Still, many wealthy, wealthy building owners used more decorative forms in public spaces in more modest or utilitarian versions in private or service spaces. Baseboards or mop boards served several purposes. When the use of plaster surfaces was anticipated, the baseboard was installed to serve as a base to gauge the thickness of the plaster above it. So hence the term baseboard. So an interesting fact there. So note, 18th and early 19th century early baseboards were attached directly to the wall framing. Later systems applied the plaster over a full height of the wall and then attached the baseboard. The baseboard also provided a means to conceal the joint in the flooring along the wall that allowed for expansion and contraction of the flooring and to conceal irregularities at the length of the flooring materials. The harder surface of the baseboard allowed the mop to strike it without fear of damaging the plaster wall surface. As with other other ornamental elements, what often started as utilitarian object was eventually decorated to improve its appearance. The basic form was simply a board attached to a wall. Many more finely decorative baseboards consisted of a board with a decorative profile planed into it. Further embellishments included Decorative cap trim along the top of a quarter-round shoe molding along the base. These moldings increased the baseboard's profile and height. The appearance of this molding varied in, in more public portions of the buildings, was likely to be taller and much more ornamental. Today, a historic profile can be recreated by combining several separate stock moldings in current production. Chair rails were used to define the top of the dado, the lower two to three feet of the wall, and to protect the wall from damage due to the top of the chair rubbing against it. The profile of the molding ran horizontally along the face. Chair rails were sometimes even used if there was no wainscoting in the dado below it. So, picture rails were also located at the top of the field above the dado. In some styles, a frieze was located above the picture rail, while in others, the field was terminated at the cornice. Nails and other pinning elements were attached to the picture rail. Cords were then used to suspend pictures and other decorative objects along the field. In this manner, damage from pounding nails into the wall was avoided. Picture nails could have a linear profile along their face or could be carved or embossed with a repeating pattern, for example, an egg and door type pattern. Casework around windows and doors was used to cover the edges of the rough construction below them. The simplest casework was a flat board, but it could even be quite elaborate with budget and availability allowed. In less ornate styles, the casework meant as a butt joint or possibility a miter joint. As the woodwork became more innate, corner blocks and intermediate rosettes were used to add decorative touches. Wainscoting was a vertically mounted tongue-and-groove board mounted on the dado portion of the wall. Wainscoting served both utilitarian and decorative functions. 
Its utilitarian value was in protecting the plaster subsurface behind it from the damage. Decorative embellishments included incorporating a V-groove or an incised bead along the edge, and sometimes repeated across the board. In some cases, raised paneling was used in place of wainscoting. Paneling came into use in the late 17th century. In the North American colonies was its first introduction. The simplest form consisted of boards mounted vertically or horizontally to the face of the wall. The boards could be fastened to the framing using wooden pegs or, if available, hand-wrought nails. In the 18th century, raised or inset paneling came into use with the Georgian period of architecture. The traditional form of raised paneling was created using a system of vertical styles and horizontal rails. The styles were mortised to receive the tenons of the horizontal rail. The groove was cut along the interior edge of the style and rails and the intervening muttons. Early forms of this groove included a decorative molding that was cut by a molding plane as part of the tongue. As the Industrial Revolution and the advent of mills, this molding profile became a separate piece. The inset panels were then cut to fit into the grooves and fill the opening created by the assembly of the style and rails. The inset panel typically had a beveled edge that gave the appearance of raised relief to the remainder of the panel. In highly ornamental paneling, these inset panels could also be carved with an assortment of sculptural forms. The inset panels were not physically fastened to the styles and rails. Instead, they were simply allowed to rest in the surrounding grooves along their edges and float as expansion and contraction ebbed and flowed. So in this manner, as they shrunk or expanded in reaction to moisture and temperature, they were free to move at their leisure. Over time, as they were painted to suit aesthetic taste, these panels often became mixed or fixed in place rather by the paint. When this occurred, they became vulnerable to splitting along the grain. The use and location of paneling varied with architectural styles and the prosperity of the owner. Paneling was typically associated with wealth and good taste and consequently was found in more expensive and finely appointed buildings. The use of raised paneling peaked in the late Victorian styles of the 19th century and the revival styles of the early 20th century, but unlike other ornamental finishes, fell out of favor with the rise of modernism. As with wallpaper and other ornamental coverings, the working class was <clears throat> the, middle, the working class and the modest middle class wanted to use paneling as a decorative wall covering. Their demand for wood paneling led to the development of veneer-faced plywood paneling and panel-faced gypsum board in the late 1950s, and subsequently the use of plastic laminates, unfortunately. Among the most simple door types was the board and batten door. It was constructed of vertically aligned planks or boards joined together horizontally by two or more boards. These doors were commonly in their earliest colonial period were joined not only for their ease of construction but also for the security they provided their owners. As prosperity and security came, 
doors and windows were built using mortise and tenon construction, similar to that of the raised paneling we just talked about. Exterior doors were typically constructed of heavier and more detailed and durable materials, but over time became elaborately decorated with wood carvings, inset windows, and ornate hardware. Fan lights and transoms above the doors and side lights flanking the doors became popular in the late colonial period. Interior doors were often character-defining features that can use to identify and date historic construction of the dwellings and remodeling periods of the building. It is important to remember that doors were often relocated in other parts of the building or to another building altogether when remodeling had occurred. Sometimes these doors were stored on site in a basement, attic, or outbuilding. Like exterior doors, interior doors became increasingly elaborate as construction budgets expanded, so these were very indispensable. Stairways were typically composed of risers and treads. When one or more sides of the stairway were not directly attached to a wall or were open, a combination of a newel post, banister, or any number of balusters were used to prevent accidental, accidental falls. The earliest colonial houses that had stairways often used only minimal de detailing. They often had flat square-edged treads or plain risers. Balusters were often small square posts used to, to support a plain baluster. As houses became larger, the stairway was located in the main entrance hall, often gained stature to the owner, including ornamental, newel post, and turn balusters that supported a contoured banister. The risers and other exposed woodwork were decorated with hand-carved wood or cast compo ornament. The treads had contoured edges and sometimes a small piece of molding to conceal the joint between the tread and the riser. A flying staircase where neither side of the stairs was attached to the wall was considered the single most dramatic form of woodwork and was found in only the finest and most expensive buildings of the time. These stairs were produced by the finest stair builders that money could afford. Stair design and detailing varied with architectural styles that reached its pinnacle in the revival styles of the early 20th century. In larger houses of the wealthy in the early 19th century, there was often a service stair that allowed servants to access the upper floors without entering the public use. The stair was often far less ornamental, smaller, and narrower than the stairway used in the family and other, for other guests. And so I must add a few things about stairways. To see a beautiful stairway, you want to take the uh, winter tour tour. It's a stairway made in the south. Uh, a freestanding um, spiral-type staircase. It's absolutely gorgeous. You want to see that on one of the Winter Tour tours. Ask your docent for that. Um, and don't forget, um, a lot of 18th century buildings would have, uh, say, a door next to the mantle or main fireplace, the main fireplace, where you would have had standard cupboards with raised panel-type doors. And you would have had a small door, which would have been a stairway that would have made an abrupt 90-degree turn, you know, probably only fitting one person. And uh, could be used for service people or, uh, and I'm thinking of the case of the Shivers House Museum, there's one hidden one 
in the tavern, and that was to get quick access upstairs into the the sleeping quarters of this very crude early or mid-17th century tavern. If there was a ruckus going on, then the tavern owner or the manager could get upstairs quickly. So just a few thoughts on staircases as we're passing through. So as with staircases, as households prospered, a variety of ornamental treatments occurred around the fireplace, including paneling and ornamental carving. Carvers and woodworkers were commissioned to craft exquisitely detailed ornamental features. The original bare mantle became enhanced with molded profiles along its edges and was supported by a variety of columns and decorative posts recalling classic orders of architecture. As styles dictated and money allowed, these features became increasingly ornamental and spread upward to cover the entire facing of the chimney. Shelves, mirrors, and other ornamental flourishes, such as carved heads, and were ex- extremely popular in the late Victorian period. At the fireplace hearth, decorative tile and stone were often an integral part of the overall assembly. In most homes, mantles were modest and simply decorated. Whatever ornament existed usually consisted of shallow molding or minimal detailing. Millwork companies and their retail counterparts, such, for example, many years ago, such as Sears and Roebuck, however, <clears throat> capitalized on the image of the elaborate mantles, fireplace surrounds, and overmantles found in finer houses and offered scaled-down versions that featured some compo, carved, or even embossed details or decorative pieces that were glued or inset into the otherwise flat face of the vertical surface. So by the late 17th century, cupboards and open shelves formed the majority of storage space. Niches and building corner cabinets, often a later addition to the uh, original building, were used to store and display dishes. Throughout the 18th century, food and food service preparation activities led to the use of counters as work surfaces. Shelving was installed above and below the counter to store the foodstuffs and tableware needed for meal preparation. Valued items were locked in boxes and food safes. By the late 18th and early 19th century, builders' pantries and other food service preparation areas adjoining the kitchen had become created and contained either open shelving or lockable cabinets. In more affluent homes, these rooms featured glass doors to allow the contents to be viewed. The 19th century saw the expanded use of both built-ins and freestanding cabinets and shelving. In stores, display cases and shelving became common for a wide variety of dry goods. These units could be built in place or fabricated elsewhere and then installed on site. For businesses, Storage systems were made by numerous manufacturers nationwide. Furniture companies saw the opportunity to expand into domestic kitchens. Metal and wood cabinets for storage and ice boxes were sold by a number of companies, including the Hooser Manufacturing Company and Kitchen Made Incorporated. The early 20th century saw the introduction of standardized cabinet sizes known as a unit system. The standardization simplified the planning and layout of increasingly small kitchens built during the mid-20th century. 
In addition, manufacturers gained an advantage in both pricing and marketry of factory-built metal and wood cabinet systems. This advantage became particularly great in the construction boom of the 1950s. The introduction of plastic laminates and pressed wood substrate during the 20th century, coupled with the do-it-yourself ethos of the period, further decreased the custom-built cabinet market as modulary and low prices found favor with kitchen designers and homeowners alike. The problems, though, associated with wood carving and millwork, you know, we just went over and discussed a little bit earlier in this episode. The treatments discussed earlier in this episode for wood may all be applied here as well. A brief overview of issues directly related to millwork and wood carving um, will continue in a minute. Wood can readily um, can be readily conserved in place if the integrity of the ornament is at risk after the source of decay has been removed. It may be necessary to use modern materials such as epoxies and consolidants when they can be concealed by paint or will not be directly viewable. Severely damaged original materials may need to be removed and stored in an appropriate way to conserve them for future reference. In this instance, a replacement object should be fabricated along with the original as its model. Wood can readily be worked and shaped using modern and traditional tools and methodology. The principal repair issues in many cases are whether a specific species of wood is available or whether the wood will remain exposed to view when the repairs have been completed. The use of old growth wood in many historic buildings raises the possibility that a matching grain pattern may not always be possible with newer wood when clear finishes or tinted stains are used. Although salvaged materials may be available, matching the grain patterns exactly may prove difficult to impossible. In this case, there are two approaches. First, the new wood used through the repair can be left unfinished or painted to differentiate, differentiate it from the original wood. Second, the wood can be decoratively painted to match the grain pattern of the earlier construction. In some historic constructions where decoratively painted uh, to resemble more expensive wood, so the concealment is not known. Small portions of the damaged or missing millwork may be newly milled using cutting tools that use profiles taken from existing millwork. Mills typically have setup charges for creating a molding profile that is not part of their standard stock run. When only a short run of molding is needed, it is possible to craft scraping tools to make short runs of molding. When larger quantities are needed, having a millwork cut at a mill may be the only economical source. Replacement of a severely deteriorated or damaged wood ornament or piece of millwork is acceptable when physical or visual evidence that supports the replacement is available. One form of replacement is salvaged pieces of millwork, such as doors, that match the missing or damaged pieces. Locating salvaged matching woodwork, although difficult, is not impossible. When salvaged resources are not readily available, the replacement must be delayed until they are found or budgets must be devised to allow reproduction or the replacement woodwork.
With the advent of modern technology, digital scanning, and pneumatic, pneumatically controlled milling machines can replicate three-dimensional wood carvings. Corner blocks, moldings, and also three-dimensional shapes can be electronically measured and recreated as needed to replace missing pieces. Some large carvings can, to some extent, be crafted under the same process. However, certain highly detailed objects may still be made by hand by carving them. Many master wood carvers can still be found to create large, detailed carvings that are beyond the scope of many modern mills today. So that uh, ends part two of our wood carving and millwork. Um, so this is Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. We're ending that segment. Um, and uh, for those of you out there that want to see us, uh, see us uh, not live, but you want to see us in person, um, look up at the historic preservationist on our Instagram profile and also on IGTV and our inst- the historic preservationist on YouTube. Uh, to follow Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Thanks for listening. Um, Signing off, Greg Perry.